You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, people come back to this episode to get updates about things mm-hmm. we've talked about on previous episodes. I like, to think of, I like to think of it like that, right? They're not just here for one thing. They're here for the full story. It's the full it's like idea. It's a series. I'm, I'm assuming a lot of people binge this podcast, which actually would probably take quite a lot of time. That's true. Yeah, no, we're. And there's a question that's been hanging around for a while, you know, on the the fan blogs, the message boards. People have been curious. They said they've heard Michael say that your school is trying to really get away from the traditional problematic Eurocentric world history curriculum. Yeah. We all want to know how's it going? (laughs) It's definitely tough. Uh, It's definitely tough. So. Actually, we're about to start World War One, And so one of the things that actually I'm very happy that my colleagues and I were just talking about, that we've been talking a lot, a lot about the colonial experience of World War One, which typically like in our textbook, we just got new textbooks for one of our classes, and it doesn't talk about that at all. But luckily, you know, we've done research on this. And so we've looked at like the colonial experience and how that kind of fed into the the movements to get rid of the, um, to get rid of colonialism afterwards. So that's been... It is a lot of outside research and thank goodness that I have good colleagues to like, you know, to talk about this and try to figure out how to, how to do it better. It would be great if we every so often, like we find a really great source. Oh, the British museum, the British museum had a really great, they have a great primary document set related to Indian soldiers in World War One, which has been pretty helpful. I mean, so getting some primary documents into hands. And so that's been pretty neat. It definitely is drips and drabs, and we are not drips and drabs, like, which is definitely an effort, but luckily it's a communal effort. So hopefully in the next few years, it'll be even better. And I'll have a better update for you. Well, it's hard because when you teach a course, the the curriculum that exists, it, it really is hard to start to see the story a different way, right? Like it gives you these characters and figures and movements, and you see it that way. And I was just, you all can't see this because it's a podcast, but I was just looking around my office trying to find like the decolonization book I read in college, which is like a classic. So we will get it into the show notes. And oh, I, yeah. I don't want to. And, and, you know, that when I read that in college, I mean, it was a, it was a whole book that really delved into all of the decolonization movements. And it was something that was not in my world history curriculum, which was right. extremely, extremely Eurocentric in the course that I took. One of the things that I think we've done pretty well is looking at uh, decolonization and then connecting it to the cold war because there's a heck of a lot of overlap. And so oftentimes when we talk about the Cold War, we just talk about like the US versus the Soviets, but like the colonial experience is huge with that. So that's been definitely an eye-opening thing. And so making sure that we're talking about in context of the Cold War, but obviously making sure we're dealing with the different, you know, efforts to to get rid of the uh, the Europeans on their own too, but also, you know, making that larger connection. And so this way we're not just focusing on the US versus the, the Soviets. In our teaching. So one of the things when I first started my social studies master's that was really surprising to me is I remember my professor handed me Ron Evans' book, which was the Social Studies War, and said, you should read this. 
And I said, oh, yeah. surely, surely someone did not write an entire book about the history of social studies. Little did I know that there is just libraries full of these. And so, I, you know what I'm kind of curious? I would like to read like a history of world history. I, I mean, I know that's ambitious that someone would write that. But wouldn't that that be cool? seems crazy. Like maybe cover like a century story. That's it. I mean, I don't want to go beyond that. That that would be a little excessive. But if we could find someone who had done that, I Wait. would put them on this podcast right now. Are you putting someone on the podcast today who did just that? They did. They did. We've set you all up again. We oh, tricked man. you. But luckily, you now get a treat, which is we have Stephen Jackson to welcome onto the podcast. Welcome. Hi, Dan. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me today. We're thrilled to have you here. We should clarify who you're not. You're not the former NBA basketball player, Stephen Jackson. Or the or the running back. No, not that one. Or, or the running back. Okay. So who is Stephen Jackson, the one who is with us on this podcast? I right, sure. So I'm uh, currently an associate professor of history at the University of Sioux Falls, which is a small liberal arts college in very chilly Sioux Falls, South Dakota. But actually in the fall, I'll be moving to the University of Kansas, where I'll be joining their educational leadership and policy studies program. And my background is as a historian of the British Empire. That's sort of when my training started. And uh, way back when I was a, a grad student just starting out, it took me forever to figure out how I wanted to approach my topic. I had these really great questions. I wanted to study settler colonialism in the British Empire. And I didn't really know how I was going to do it. And eventually, after an awful lot of angst and an awful lot of questions to my, my advisor, who was very patient and lovely, thank you, Dan Kennedy, you are amazing, We I happened upon the idea of looking at educational institutions. And so that sort of started me on a path to becoming sort of what I am today, which is a historian of education. And this is really useful when you're trying to understand the British Empire for a couple of reasons. Number one, the British used or sort of justified themselves in many cases by, hey, look at all the good we're doing. Look at all the schools we built. And so education became sort of a primary justification for imperialism, but also simultaneously, particularly in the settlement colonies, although I think this is true throughout the British Empire, the British, uh, wherever they're going, they're, they're establishing new educational institutions that are foundational to sort of perpetuating new ideas of what this society is supposed to be like. So the sort of powerful people in society are saying our schools need to reflect who we want to be. And so it's a really important engine for the construction of the settler state. And that's what a lot of my, my early work is on. So my first two books are sort of uh, looking at Canada and Australia and their history. And I study all sorts of things, including uh, religious education, showing how that continued to be a really fundamentally important part of the way those uh, states saw themselves up until the mid 20th century. But as I'm as I'm sort of researching these things and studying the history of education in the British Empire, I was at the same time teaching world history, which is the first class I ever taught. It's sort of my bread and butter course that I teach at the University of Sioux Falls to mostly an audience of first semester freshman undergraduate students. And I kept sort of banging my head against the wall against something, which is I, I'm I'm very familiar with the the literature on world history which sort of tells me one thing. It paints this very vibrant picture of global connectedness over the past several centuries. But then when I talk to my students, they have this overwhelmingly Eurocentric view of what the past looks like. And I kept thinking, well, why is this? I I knew that these students had a background. Many of them have taken world history courses. So what's going on? Why is there such a gap seemingly between what the the literature, the scholarship says and, and what my students are 
uh, are sort of learning and, and experiencing in the classroom. And just to give you an example of this, just this semester, I always like to start my world history course out with just uh, on the first day, I asked them if you had to write a 300 page book on the whole history of the world of the last, you know, five, 800 years, whatever, what, who would you include? And, and it's always a revealing exercise. Students have to, you know, learn or think about how they're going to make choices, how they'd organize that. And overwhelming this, this term more actually than most, Every single named event, uh, person, or major trend in history that they identified came from Europe. They they didn't have really much of a of a global mindset, and perhaps that that reflects the, their sort of background coming from South Dakota and uh, South Dakota, where we're not the most diverse state. But I do think it says something about how we often think about world history, and that really got me thinking about a project on world history in American high schools, which is what we're here to talk about today. So without further ado, let's talk about the book, which is available for purchase. It is published by Routledge. So the book is The Patchwork of World History in Texas High School, Unpacking Eurocentrism, Imperialism, and Nationalism in the Curriculum, 1920 to 2021. You couldn't stop at a century. You had to do an extra year. You had to do that extra oh. 2021. Oh, yes. Well, we got it. We got to talk about CRT. So I really wanted to get that extra year because there's so many debates just in the last couple of years that have really impacted things. Yeah. So I started having this interest in world history and I, I first got an opportunity to to dive into it in 2014. And I uh, I went to or I, I participated in this ninth international seminar on decolonization. It was sponsored by the National History Center. And this is in Washington, D.C. They they did this for 10 years and they brought a bunch of scholars in just to talk about decolonization. And my idea was to not not dip my toes too far from what I'd already done. I'm, I'm still looking at imperialism. I'm just seeing how imperialism is taught in American schools. And that was a really interesting project. And it turned into an article for the History of Education Quarterly that came out in 2018 on sort of the narratives of decolonization that continued to, to uh, per be perpetuated in, in high school textbooks. But one of the things I noticed in that in that study is we really don't have a good grip on the history of the subject of, of how world history developed and arose and, and what forces sort of shaped it foundationally. And it's really surprising to me because I'm very familiar with there's a there's a pretty significant literature on exactly this topic when you apply it to U.S. history. U.S. history sort of always as you know, we got lots of passionate debates over that then, you know, over the last century and into now. And so we have a lot of really good scholarship on this, but there's really nothing like that for world history. So that's what really drove me to write a whole book on the subject. And, and I hope that my book starts a conversation where we get more studies like this. And so I applied for funding from the Spencer Foundation and, and won a grant to do that. And I pitched this idea that I was going to use one particular case study, and that's the, the case study of Texas. And Texas, for a couple of reasons, the one, they're, they're one of the largest states, so they have one of the largest school districts. The other reason is that they approve their textbooks at the state level, which means that when they approve textbooks, I mean, it's a big deal. And, and their textbooks sort of shape the national textbook marketplace, at least historically. There's some evidence that that's, that, that power of Texas over the national marketplace is waning somewhat, particularly particularly with the proliferation of online resources, and also because publishers can now sort of tailor some of their resources in, in other ways. So I, I looked at Texas and I examined every physical textbook that has been approved over the last century by the state and every curriculum. So that's wow. how I sort of spent my, my pandemic. You know, most people learned how to, how to like make sourdough or something. And I spent it reading really old and dusty textbooks. So I, I think I won there, uh, really. And I, I watched uh, them. I watched the Marvel movies. That, that was my that was my pandemic. It was far less productive and and resulted in no no uh, publications. Although I did we did get together and have a like academic discussion of Wandavision when it came out. I'm very proud of that. I was. There. I think anything that kept you sane during that time is is a win, no matter what. That it is was. 
That is correct. I don't know if it led to insanity now that I'm in this Marvel cinematic universe, but what was the world history textbook universe like, as people call it, the WHTU? Sure. It, it's kind of a wild story. So the, the 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 thing that I think always surprises people is that there are there is no historians working on world history for about the first 50 years that we have this course in high schools. So this should be surprising to us. Imagine if like we right. teach chemistry in the high schools and we don't have any chemistry professors, right? That's kind of what we're dealing with when we talk about world history. And the reason is because of a turf war. So we should, we should actually start with what's going on in the late 19th century, which is sort of the heyday, the, the apogee of the power of the American Historical Association over the American high school social studies or history curriculum. So they come out with this thing in the late 1890s. It's called the Committee of Seven Report, and it recommends four full years of high school history and it culminates in American history. And this is what historian, the leading historians thought. And it actually sort of takes out this earlier class. There's a class in the 19th century called general history, which a lot of world historians regard as the first world history. But this course is sort of demolished by the AHA plan. They did not, they, they, they're very vociferously against general history. They said, there's no way you can cover meaningfully, you know, most of the history of the world in one, one year. We got to do it over four years and you got to do it following the AHA's plan. Well, and so for the first two decades of the 20th century, that plan is pretty dominant across the country. And that those numbers are reflected in Texas, which general history falls to like under 1% of the, the high school history curriculum at that time by 1920. But then World War I happens and you start seeing the rise of social studies advocates. And the social studies advocates are composed of non-historians, many of whom are like, why do we teach only history? Why aren't we teaching these other disciplines of the social studies? All of which have really important things to add. And they said, well, historians, why are we spending all this time talking about the very distant past when the thing that really matters is understanding the here and now and understanding our contemporary society. And so you have all these advocates for the social studies and they start saying, we need to really change this, this AHA plan. We don't like it. And, and the historians, and I'm going to, I'm going to just sort of uh, be reductive for a second for the sake of hilarity, hopefully they just said, you know, okay, fine. You guys do your curriculum the way you want. We're not going to be a part of it. And so there's all these, these big commissions at the national level that are recommending this new course gradually it comes to be known as world history. And it's supposed to focus on the recent past and it's supposed to give students an international perspective to help inform their citizenship. That's the idea behind it. And it's really progressive social studies advocates that are at the beginning of this. So that means that the course between the say 1920s and 1930s comes to take its place as the second most important history class in American high schools across the country. And, and the numbers bear that out in Texas, where it remains for 50 years, but there's no group of historians doing world history. So what you have oftentimes are historians that maybe work on Western Civ or they work on someplace in Europe and they'll write these textbooks and that's what, and they, they but they sort of modify it a little bit, including some additional content on, uh, on world history. And that's the case until the early 1980s. 1982, we see the creation of the World History Association. And very quickly, they develop a very different way of understanding world history. Instead of what is often referred to as the sort of West and the rest approach, they viewed world history as this series of global interconnections. But they had terrible timing because the early 1980s are also when we see the rise of sort of the accountability movement and the rise of state standards in particular, where we see the high school history curriculum comes more under the control over political forces than ever before. And it makes it makes the course in general sort of resistant to the kinds of changes that you would normally expect if the scholarship reflects something different. So the, the short answer to my question, why don't my students uh, understand sort of the vibrancy of the field is because, well, state standards change very slowly and it's very difficult to make them change 
change anything other than an incremental fashion. And so we actually have courses that reflect more paradigms that were created in the first half of the 20th century as the, the courses early, you know, in its earliest stages in the progressive era and then in the uh, post-World War II era. That's probably more similar to most students. Now, there is one big exception to this, and that's the Advanced Placement World History course, which is now, I think, just over 20 years old or somewhere in that in the neighborhood. And that course was uh, pioneered by world historians. So the College Board uh, invited a bunch of people from the World History Association to take part in that. And they created this course that reflected much more closely the, the view of sort of professional scholars in world history when it comes to the what should be in the course. And so that course is is generally much more liked by educators. It's much more liked by a lot of different groups. The the problem, and this is one thing that I point out in my book, is that it it still isn't reaching that many people. So if you look at the numbers, so I, I you can do this really easily for Texas. So I did this for, I looked at the numbers in 2018, 2019. I think it gives us a good snapshot of what's going on. At that time, Texas accounted for fully 20% of the national AP world history exam. So it's like one of the highest percentages of any state. In that same year where Texas is one of the highest percentages, fully four times as many students in Texas took the traditional world history course, then took advanced placement world history. And that number, the number of Texas students taking the traditional world history course represents something like 95% of the amount of people that took AP world history in that entire country. So it's pretty clear from the numbers that the traditional version, the one that most scholars and educators sort of frown upon and think is not even really world history, still remains the norm in a lot of places. And most of the research bears that out, that the curriculum in general reflects, it's got different names, Western the rest or uh, Western civilization plus great world historian Peter Stearns, once called this approach, approach Western civilization with a bit of hamburger helper, which I think is a, is a pretty fun line to, to sort of mm-hmm. describe it. So we still have this very traditional paradigm, uh, although one thing we can trace and one thing I do trace in the book is that although there are, there are similarities that we can trace back to the 1920s, the course still has evolved in a lot of different ways. So it begins with these progressive educators. By the 1950s, 1960s, we start seeing multicultural advocates very strongly saying this course is Eurocentric. It's not reflecting non-Western peoples. Uh, and in particular, they, they really didn't like the stereotypical language that we gave for non-Western peoples. And so we start seeing some changes there, right? We're not referring to Africans as primitives or savages anymore. But one thing I point out in the book is that although multicultural advocates are successful in some ways at, at re- reducing the negative stereotyping of non-Western peoples, and they're successful at including multiple other peoples, they're not really that successful at changing the underlying narrative that's embedded within this course. And so when you think of what does Eurocentrism do, there's there's kind of a couple different ways we can think about it. One of those ways is Eurocentrism excludes non-Western people from being part of the narrative. And that's really common in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s, and into the 60s. It's not really as common today. We, If you get any world history textbook, you're going to see non-Western peoples all over the place. The problem is they've just been sort of glommed on to a pre-existing narrative that largely viewed Europe uh, or the West as the engine of, of world history. And so we have all the, and there's all these different ways. And my book really talks about this. And we can maybe perhaps talk about a couple of examples of this, but there's a lot of different ways where they presume European superiority. And even now we see sort of coded language. So whereas textbooks in the 20s and 30s might have talked about Europeanization or Westernization as this really important force for the world, today textbooks will talk about modernization. You'll see that word modernization over and over and over again in textbooks. 
Uh, functionally, that word is doing the exact same work that Westernization would have used. What does it mean to be modern? For most textbooks, it means to be European or to look like a European state. And so this presents a series of problems um, that, that we can talk about and, and look at how it sort of distorts textbook narratives. And it's that kind of covert Eurocentrism that I think is still alive and well today, and that we still see as sort of a, a pretty significant problem when it comes to how we teach world history. I mean, so far, a lot of this is not that surprising to me, but is really helpful to overview, right? Like in the sense, it really helps me to like, as you walk through it and tell the story, it's still kind of stunning what the story is, but it's also not surprising if that makes sense, right? Like if you think of this traditional curriculum and even the term modernization, you I, I've seen it used and you can always feel that it's it's dictating or, or indicating a certain way of living. Can I ask you just a real quick side question? I know you're going to get into some examples. What are some of the things that most surprised you looking at this? That's that's kind of my, you know what I mean? I'm sure some of this, even though looking at the details was incredibly fascinating. What is it that like, you're like, wow, I did not think that would be the case. So a couple of things. One is that the fact that sort of this, this course was kind of a rudderless shit for almost a half a century, right? Where there's nobody that's really in charge of it or that thinks of it as their natural discipline. Uh, that to me is, is really fascinating that we, we just had this thing in our high schools that just wasn't reflected in, in tertiary instruction. I think that's really kind of anomalous in American education and, and a fascinating story. And so, and, and one of the things I, I hope my book does is it sort of can start a conversation between professional world historians and professional educators because world historians will often say, well, okay, what you're doing isn't really world history as if they own world history. And I think my book shows, well, actually they had it first, right? And it was going on for half a century in the school, in the secondary schools before it was a going concern in, in, the, in the college. And a lot of the literature also suggests that secondary schools kind of just mimic what's going on at universities. And, and I think my book shows that actually it's, it's a really dynamic and there, there's a lot of changes and twists and turns in this story that I think some of the trends we might have uh, a good handle on, but the specifics of how it works out and, and what, is, what is going on now, I think it's useful to have that backdrop there. I have another random question. Did you, I mean, you looked at the the, the textbooks that were adopted, of course, both the, you know, these committees that got together and made decisions about the curriculum, the people who got to adopt the textbooks, right? Those are going to largely historically be, you know, white men who had a lot of power throughout history and time. And, and recently, those who had more access to power. I'm curious, did is there, has there been much analysis in how, for example, books that were not adopted? You, I think of like, I'm, I'm trying to remember if Carter G. Woodson wrote a book that was primarily focused on world history. Or if his his and and maybe if it's focused on Black history and did focus on it on the African continent as a central, you know, part of the story of African and and then Black American people. I mean, does that does that tell like a kind of a counter narrative, or do you know about those those types of textbooks that were out there but just weren't adopted? Yeah, so I think that's sort of the the next stage of this research where this where this might go. What I hope to do with this project is really mm -hmm. and again. Yeah, there, there's really not uh, any kind of uh, history of education on world history. And so I was hoping this to, this to be sort of a foundational, okay, here's some baseline information on what, what's happened over the last century. Uh, and then my hope is that maybe myself or maybe others might follow this up uh, and start looking for those kinds of misplaces, which I think we can do once we have that foundational point. And then we could sort of branch out and look at the the sort of what might have been in world history, because I think that's really important. And, and also we need to know more about 
how did teachers actually teach this stuff? Because as mm-hmm. we all know, just because it's in a curriculum, just because it's in a textbook, doesn't mean it's not there. Although in world history, it's a little complicated because most teachers, and this is still as true today as it's ever been, don't receive formal training in world history. They are much more likely to receive it in US history than they are in world history. And so the a lot of the research suggests that they're more reliant then on foundational sources like textbooks than they might be in, in US history. So I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm ready for your examples on how <laughs> and how this is seen in the curriculum. Sure. There, there's a couple that I think are are really illustrative here. One of them is the treatment of the Ottoman Empire. I, I love teaching the Ottoman Empire. I think it's so fascinating. But if you think of this traditional Eurocentric narrative where, where especially Western Europe is kind of the engine of history, the Ottomans don't really fit neatly into this. And they don't fit neatly into it for a lot of reasons. They're a European power, they're a North African power, and they're, they're a Middle Eastern power. In traditional world history narratives, those are, those are three different subjects that we talk about in three different ways, and we have three different sort of narratives for them. So the Ottomans just sort of fall through the cracks. And in my analysis, this is exactly what happened. So in the earliest eras, the 20s, 30s, 40s, even in the 50s, the Ottomans just don't really make an appearance, and they're very rarely mentioned. If they are, they're mentioned in these really harsh, stereotypical languages, actually, in some ways, just impugning them because they're an Islamic power, that it was they were holding down the Christian population of, you know, like Greece and and other places in Europe, the territories that they held. But sort of moving forward, the the big thing that you'll notice anytime you you see a textbook or curriculum talk about the Ottoman Empire, there's one word that stands out above all the rest. And that word is decline. The Ottoman Empire declined, declined, declined. Every textbook I read, well, I shouldn't say every, the vast majority of textbooks I read had declined at least somewhere in like a subheading or was a major thing that we talked about. And the way it happens because of the way, if you think about how world history textbooks are normally structured, it goes often region by region. And then you get to about the 1500s, 1600s. And then that region is mostly Europe for a couple centuries. So you might hear about the rise of the Ottomans. And then you don't hear about the Ottomans again until the 19th century when they're, you know, the sick man of Europe as the old stereotype goes. But all the focus is on decline. And the problem with decline is that, A, it's inaccurate. They're, they're scholars of the Ottoman Empire don't really use that idea of the Ottoman Empire anymore, or at least it's inaccurately applied. So a lot of them, and even textbooks as, as recent, the most recent textbooks in Texas are in 2016, um, they talk about decline starting in the 1500s. They'll say everything after Suleiman the Magnificent is a story of decline. Which would mean the Ottoman Empire, which survived for five centuries and successfully fought in the World War, beat the British in a major battle of the World War, where they fully mobilized a massive army, were declining for like three centuries or the vast majority of their existence. And it's just a really problematic narrative. But it's one of the only ones you'll see in these textbooks, this idea of decline over and over and over again that you see this. And it's problematic in in a lot of ways. One of those is that it's, it's just unevenly applied. So the example I like to use is we we talk about decline with the Ottomans. Why don't we use that same language when we talk about the Habsburgs, right? We, you could you could pretty much periodize them the same way, right? That they're really powerful in uh, sort of the early modern era, uh, but then they gradually dissipate in power by the 19th century. Into the 20th century, they become a less relevant power. And then the same kind of an empire. They're a polyglot, multi-ethnic empire that struggles in the era of nationalism. But we, you don't really think about decline associated with the Habsburgs. And, and why is that? Because we consider the Habsburgs European, and we don't give that same courtesy to the Ottomans. So narratives like that are very common in world history textbooks that, that like to paint pictures of, of ascent and decline. And ascent and decline, at least narratively speaking, is mostly associated with, are you getting more European or are you becoming less European? 
And and it's now sort of an unstated assumption, but those those per, that perpetual idea of decline continue or continues even today. Even though again, most of the scholarship doesn't reflect that. Two more examples that we might might hit on. One is the narrative of Japan. So thinking about the Meiji Restoration. So this is the moment where Japan becomes the first non-Western power to successfully industrialize. It's a remarkable story of how they're able to accomplish this, especially after they had kept themselves, they sort of kept Europeans at bay for quite a long time, successfully for centuries before that time. As told by most world history textbooks, the story of Japanese and Meiji restoration is a story of mimicry. They're just copying what Europeans are doing. And so the Japanese are not agents in their own story. If they copy industrialization, it's just that. It's it's a copy. And that's a really problematic narrative for a lot of reasons uh, as well, because it facilitates something that often happens in these narratives, which strips non-Western people of any real agency. But also, again, it's it's inaccurate, right? If you if you think about uh, industrial revolutions and they are a global phenomenon that we should think about in a global context, there's only been one unique and original one. That's England. Everyone else has been copying something, right? So all I guess all industrial revolutions except the first one are a copy or a mimic. But we don't talk about that when it applied to the United States or when it applied to Germany or France or other uh, 19th century industrial powers. We do talk about that in that way with the Japanese. And we don't really give them credit for this really remarkable achievement in the face of imperial aggression, in the face of pretty overwhelming odds where a lot of other non-Western peoples are not able to successfully do this. I think it's a really interesting story and one that could be told in a much more powerful way were it not sort of dominated by this idea that all they're doing is just copying what's already been done from somebody else. And then the third example that I like to to talk about is the example of imperialism. And this is sort of my bread and butter. I love talking about imperialism. And one thing that's interesting, you can see a trend right starting from the very beginning of this course, right around the the 1920s, where world history textbook authors have never fully bought the the civilizing mission. There was almost, well, with a couple of exceptions in the early 1920s, there's almost always a willingness to criticize imperialism, that they were greedy or perhaps they went a little bit too far. But at the same time, there's a general acceptance that imperialism was the the agent that brought about westernization or that brought about today, we would say modernization, right? So the way older textbooks would say is that it woke up a sleepy world, right? That these older civilizations once had great civilizations. This is a very Orientalist trope. They once had these great civilizations, but then they fell asleep at the wheel. Europe had to go wake them up through the process of imperialism. And this is, this is in some ways, it's kind of continued in narratives today where imperialism, again, you'll see these sort of superficial criticisms of imperialism, but then generally a an acceptance of Im- the imperial trajectory. And this has taken different uh, shape differently over time. So you'll see in the 30s, 20s, 20s, 30s, and 40s, you'll see general acceptance that imperialism was this westernizing, modernizing force. There's a really interesting moment in the 60s and 70s where some authors, including some of the pioneering authors of the world history movement, they started arguing that decolonization was actually the culmination of Europe's success. And it was the culmination of Europe's success. And this is a really, it's kind of a wild argument to me, because of course, these people across the world are are throwing off European imperialism as fast as they possibly can, now that they're able to after the Second World War. But the idea behind this argument is that the, the people that are throwing off European rule are nationalists. Nationalism is European, and therefore, they're just copying Europeans. And so this is really, it shows the global distribution of European ideals. 
by the 1980s, you get a new phenomenon. And this is what I what we, you might think of as the, the pros and cons approach. And this is what's still more or less typical today, which is this idea that we can have a balance sheet approach where we weigh, well, here's good things that imperialists did. And here's some bad things that imperialists did. You be the judge yourself. And on the one hand, this at least invites the possibility that we might critique imperialism, that we could, for the first time, textbooks are saying, well, maybe you decide that imperialism wasn't a good thing. But on the other hand, Priya Satya has done a really good job in her in her book, Times Monster, and in, in a couple of articles where she'll talk about how the pros and cons approach is, is fundamentally problematic because how do you how can you possibly have a balance sheet approach to something as as violent and brutal as imperialism? This is a fundamentally ahistorical way of understanding this this historical phenomenon. And that's still, you'll still see that in some textbooks today. But in general, the 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 sort of presupposition of a lot of these textbooks, and this is why I, I try to think of them as underlying narratives. The underlying narrative is that imperialism brought about modernity. It, it created the modern sort of economy, the global interconnectedness that we still see today. And therefore, despite the fact that maybe there were some problems with it, it was a good thing. And this narrative fundamentally does a couple of things. Number one, again, it, it strips non-Western peoples of agency, which is kind of a through line. A lot of these, th these the problem, most deep problems with Eurocentrism, I think, is that it doesn't really give agency to non-Western peoples. But uh, even just as problematically, it, it sort of minimizes the brutality of imperialism. And I know this is something that gets caught up in, in culture wars and, and things like that, but but this is this is really an important fact. And it also doesn't grapple with sort of the fundamental contradiction of imperialism. Here you have, and in world history textbooks, a central narrative is the growth of democracy. And that's what a lot of the people that really want to talk about world history are trying to do. But how do you grapple with the fact that these democratic powers, including the United States, are acting autocratically abroad, right? How do you, how are you uh, embracing democracy to an extent at home, but then just just engaging in arbitrary rule abroad? And so those narratives uh, started out very early, and I think there's kind of an, an inertia to these things, right? And this is hopefully something that comes out of the book is that there's an, this inertia. Once textbooks and curricula start doing things one way, it's really hard to change them, even if we have really good new information that sort of can convince us otherwise. It feels like white supremacy is kind of the glue that holds those three examples together, right? <laughs> Underlying all of them is this centering whiteness and, you know, uh, progress together that that justifies everything, right? And of course, we get this in U.S. history texts, too, with things like Manifest Destiny, of course, which is another iteration of what you're talking about there. So this the first thing this is this is really helpful to get this this kind of critique of, of the way this has come about over time. So what advice, I guess, would you have, I, there's a couple of groups we often talk to here, both, you know, social studies teachers who are, who are teaching, oftentimes teaching world history, who would be interested in this, and then also kind of social studies scholars who have to wrestle with the kind of the history of the field. What, what advice would you give both of those groups that, you know, you kind of take away from your book? Well, as I as I said earlier, one thing I hope happens is that this produces a, a conversation amongst these these different kinds of groups because I think too often world historians are reading other world historians and they're not very familiar with what's going on at the at the K through twelve level and uh, simultaneously many people at the K through twelve level are not a, that aware of what's going on at the level of of world history and there's a really productive conversation that needs to be had and one thing that I find uh, a little frustrating is whenever I read articles about say standards or about the way world history is taught, there's there's sort of this, this common trend that you see a lot of uh, scholars do is that they'll say, here's what's being taught. Here's what I just read in the latest book in my field. 
And they'll, they'll all, inevitably, what's being taught at the K through 12 level is, is found wanting, right? And there are some real problems there. And I, I'm not suggesting this approach be, be dismissed entirely. But what's missing from that approach is the idea of change over time. So we can measure where we are currently in K through 12 versus where we are currently in the scholarship. That's one way to look at it. But another way, I think just as importantly, is here's where the K through 12 level is right now. Here's where it was in the previous iteration of the standards, or here's where it was 20 years ago. How do we compare those two things? Have we made progress? And from that perspective, you know, I think it's inarguable that as much as people have been criticizing world history, I mean, literally since the moment it, it existed, and there's not a lot of fans of the course, there's a lot of people that criticize it for any number of reasons, that I think there's inarguably been some uh, some progress made, right? It is, it is a big deal that we're no longer using stereotypical language. It is a big deal uh, that even as we have all these culture wars and uh, that sort of world history kind of usually isn't front and center in those culture wars, but is certainly affected, it, it matters when there are even little changes that that can perhaps move the course incrementally in different directions. And I do think there's this idea that um, K through 12 educators should just stop whatever they're doing and immediately shift to whatever's happening in the scholarship. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons. Number one, it's just, just unrealistic, right? There, there's so many different stakeholders in K through 12 education that have so many different interests in, in education. And it's really hard to change those things. And just understanding the practical bureaucratic reality of how the curriculum is made, I think is really important for world history scholars. At the same time, I hope that the book uh, sort of convinces educators and social studies and professionals really of the, of the value of sort of examining this course. What are the possibilities of it? Where might it be going? Uh, and here, I think when we talk about sort of our current culture war over sort of critical race theory and divisive concepts and all those things, again, the lion's share of the attention goes to United States history, as it always has for the last century. World history kind of is, is in the shadows of these debates. But nevertheless, there are a lot of examples where we can see that this is still a, a salient issue. So I'll give an example from my state. I've been involved, I was involved in a 2021 curricular overhaul, overhaul in the state of South Dakota, which has gotten all sorts of negative controversies, which perhaps require their own podcast to talk about at a later time. But one of those things is I, I was involved in working on the subject of world history. And there's been many iterations. In fact, that what I worked on was subsequently thrown out by the state government, who then initiated their own standards curriculum with people from Hillsdale College. Uh, and the new Hillsdale version, basically, it, it labels the course world history. But in all reality, it's a course on Western civilization. And I think that's a big part of where this current culture war moment is, is it, as it relates to world history, is sort of moving it back so that it's it focuses focuses more on Western predominance. And many scholars, I, I don't know if they're a, how aware people are of this as, as part of our current debate that we're having, or are really even engaging with that element of our current moment. So hopefully that's the conversation that, that emerges here. First, I'd like to chide Michael for not using his, his planning period they give him each day to read scholarly world history articles. You should, should be doing that for that, that all the extra time they give you at school, Michael. I'm sorry, I'm getting research papers right now. <laughs> no, I'm I'm kidding. And I do really appreciate, Stephen, how you are kind of bringing this all together with the realities uh, that everyone faces. Because I think a lot of, uh, of people, especially who've been teaching world history for a lot of years, do really care about the nature of the curriculum, as Michael's been talking for a long time about how they've been rethinking the curriculum. And if you're working in world history, it's easy to just see, you know, oh, school curriculum's terrible. They all mis mis teach it. You know what I mean? And I think it's always easy for people who aren't in those fields doing that work to kind of assume that other people are, don't care about those things. And the reality is you're, you're telling us is like, we need to figure out some ways to be able to be in conversation with each other and learn from each other about how we can create better curriculum, especially uh, when, again, it's seemingly people who grew up on these histories are now trying to reinstitute them 
um, in ways that feel kind of racist in, in recentering this, especially, well, it was always racist. It was racist a hundred years ago. I guess it is now too, right? So, so I really appreciate you writing this book. And this seems like a really integral book for anyone in social studies education and social studies scholarship who's going to think about world history and curriculum making. Um, and it, it certainly seems like a really nice companion to books like that we mentioned earlier, like the Social Studies Wars by Ron Evans, which have tried to give a lot of history to the field. So thanks for all your work on this. Yeah, well, thank you all again for, for having me and for the conversation. And I, I hope, again, it starts a, a conversation. Maybe that'll take place in the show notes, but uh, feel free to, to reach out and uh, be glad to talk about any, anything to do with world history. I love nerding out about the subject. <laughs> well, Stephen Jackson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you all. Where can our listeners find you or your work online? And by the book. So the book, you can just go to Routledge. You can just uh, search the Patrick of World History in Texas high schools. It'll take you right there. I think you can get most of the introduction for as a free preview. So you don't have to pay for it to read what is often, you know, the most important part where the argument is laid out. So mm -hmm. feel free to, to do that or talk to your local library to maybe purchase a copy. Um, I'm on social media at Stomper Jacks. You can find me there. Um, I'll be, as I mentioned, I'm moving to University of Kansas. And at some point, there'll be a faculty site there probably not too long after this episode airs. So you can find me online there as well. Well, please send us the new faculty site. We'll get that up. And of course, we have the book hyperlinked in our show notes. So thanks again for joining us. We certainly hope to the, the continue the discussion online with chat bots and in other spaces. Sounds great. Now at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun or creative in education, or you just want to chat, we're on the Twitter at Visions of Ed. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, tell your friends, subscribe. We're on really Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, probably Amazon Music. I don't know. I'm going to figure that out. But anywhere you'd like us to be, we can be there. We're there. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. We would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. Zach you can Seitz. still find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm somewhere over the rainbow. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.